Happy Easter. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here. And so honored and uh, filled with joy you would choose to worship with us this morning on this special uh, day for us as Christians that claim to be followers of Jesus. Uh, we are here because we believe that as Christians that Jesus really did resurrect from the dead. And we believe that because, not just because the Bible tells us so, Bible does tell us so, but the Bible is written by real people who experienced a real resurrected Jesus and wrote about it. And when you read the gospel narratives and you read it, it doesn't read as if it's a story that's fictionally made up, trying to do people, trying to uh, communicate a lie. It's written as if people are really writing an account of what they went and they experienced. And it, it seems normal in the sense of the emotions that they experience, the things that they talked about. We can read and we can go, oh, that's probably how I would respond too. We've got a guy named Matthew who was a Jewish tax collector who left his occupation to follow Jesus and writes an account of what it meant to interact with Jesus and what he did and what he said and what, uh, what his life was like. Then you've got a guy named Mark who got his gospel most likely from Peter. We'll talk more about Peter here in a minute, but he wrote down as Peter talked about walking with Jesus, what it was like and the things that they talked about. And then we have Luke who was a doctor, a physician, who went and interviewed multiple people and gave an account of these people's testimony as to who Jesus is and what he was like. Then James, my favorite. James is a half-brother of Jesus. And when James was walking on this earth, while Jesus was walking on this earth, he didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe that he was God's son. He wasn't a believer. But after the resurrection, he became a follower. He became a believer in Jesus. And he actually called his brother Lord. What brother would call another brother Lord? I'm just saying... I mean, it's going to take a lot for me to tell my brother, yeah, you're my Lord. It's just not going to work, right? What would cause James to change his mind? It was the resurrection. And then we have John, Jesus' closest disciple, the one that he said loved Jesus the most. These disciples wrote an account of their interactions with Jesus, and it writes how a real story would write. No one was expecting Jesus to come back from the grave. And in fact, when you write it, you can begin to realize, or when you read it, you begin to realize that these guys had a really rough Easter weekend. Really rough. I mean, they were expecting Jesus to be a king and a Messiah that was gonna rule and reign and take over the world, and he dies. He dies. And all that they knew and all they believed and all they'd hoped for, all their dreams shattered. And if you've come this morning and your, your faith is on the rocks, you've got more questions and doubts than you have answers, I want to tell you, you are sitting in good company with Jesus' disciples on this weekend because they were in the same exact place. And there was one disciple in particular who I would say maybe was struggling probably the most out of all the disciples. His name's Peter. The weekend was terrible, but it was really terrible for Peter. And 
Peter probably was asking the question, well, who is Jesus? Because who I thought Jesus is is not true. And what have I done? What have I done? You might be asking, well, why? If you don't know the story, on Thursday night, Jesus is meeting with his disciples, his last night with them, and he's having a meal with them, and he says to them this, he says, I'm gonna go away. And the disciples are confused. Well, where are you going, Lord? What do you mean you're going away? And Peter stands up like he boldly does so often and says, I'm gonna go with you wherever you go, Jesus. And Jesus looks at Peter, and he tells him, Peter, you're gonna deny me three times tonight. And Peter probably heard those words and was like, I would never do that. But if you know how the story goes, Jesus comes and gets arrested. And he begins the process of being put on trial. And John and Peter begin to follow Jesus, confused and totally misunderstanding what was happening. But they're following Jesus and they're listening to the trial. They're listening to the conversations. And it says in John chapter 18, verse 15, that Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. That's John. He never refers to himself in the writing of John because that's what you did in the first century. If you wrote, you never talked about yourself. So he just refers to himself as another disciple. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back and spoke to the servant girl on duty there and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, are you? This is the moment where Peter has a choice. Will he acknowledge that he's a follower of Jesus? Will he stand up courageously like he's done so often before and say, yes, I'm a disciple of Jesus? No. He says, I am not. I'm not one of his disciples. I want you to look at verse 18. This is really important. We're going to talk about it later. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a, what to say, around a, a fire they had made to keep warm. And Peter also was standing with him, warming himself. Peter goes on to deny Jesus, not once, not twice, three times. Okay, so he denied, he denied Jesus. Okay, well, Jesus said plainly, if you deny me before men, I'll deny you in front of my heavenly Father. But not only that, in a, in a rabbi-disciple relationship in the first century, like if you denied your rabbi, if you said, I'm not gonna follow my rabbi, I don't know him, I'm not one of his followers, you just committed relational suicide with that person. That person would then see you as dead to them. It would be like you having a relationship with your best friend and someone says, are you best friends with someone? No, I don't know who that person is. You can imagine the brokenness in this situation. You can imagine all weekend long as Peter watches Jesus on that Thursday night and Friday morning at noon when Jesus dies. The weight of those 24 hours where Peter not only denied his rabbi, not only denied his teacher, but in addition to that, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one that you thought was going to change the world, dies. Horrible weekend. In fact, so much so, we know that one of Jesus' disciples commits suicide over it. 
It's a dark weekend. The guilt, confusion, the shame, the lostness in the moment. It was a long weekend. And as they got Jesus' body off the cross quickly because the Sabbath was coming on Saturday and during the Sabbath on Saturday, you did nothing. And so in order to prepare his body quickly, they got him off the cross. They put him in a tomb. They did partial, uh, the partial burial process, but they left him and got home to the Sabbath all day Saturday. They sit and they mourn and they weep and they live in shock and awe of the reality of like what just happened. And then it says on Sunday morning, some of Jesus' closest followers, his his disciples of women, they get up early in the morning. Verse 1, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? I mean, this makes sense. They haven't even thought clearly about what's happening. They're just living in the moment. They realize, I don't even know if we can get to Jesus' body. There's There's a rock in front of the tomb. What are we supposed to do? It writes how you would probably write a story of a testimony of what you experienced. We didn't even think about the tomb. How are we going to get to Jesus' body? They're not knowing what's happening. They're not sitting in front of the tomb, watching the sun come up with their popcorn, going, you ready? He's coming. He's coming. They're not doing that, are they? They have no idea what's next, which is often what happens when you're dealing with trauma. (laughs) You have no idea what's next. And as they roll in, They looked up, and they saw the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go tell his disciples, and who's that other person? Go tell his disciples, and Peter. Oh, I thought Peter was one of the disciples. Yeah, he was. He's not anymore. He's on the outside. He's not following Jesus. He's betrayed his rabbi. So they write it just how it is. Like it's, go tell his disciples and Peter. He's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you, trembling and bewildered, which would make sense why you'd be trembling and bewildered because don't know if you know this, dead guys don't come back to life, right? Uh, What do you mean he's alive? Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now, if you were making up a story, be like, well, they went and told everybody because they knew this was going to happen and this is what they did. No, they're like, no, we're not going to talk to anybody because something weird's happening. Eventually, they do go and talk to the other disciples. John chapter 20 Verse 2, so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And who's the other disciple? Just so we know, the other disciple is John. Good. John. The one that Jesus loved and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We don't know where they have put him. They're so confused. They think someone stole the body, which actually was very common in the first century, unfortunately. Someone took the body. Confused, bewildered. 
So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. It's a nice little jab, isn't it? I mean, Peter was quick to action, but he was slower than molasses, according to John. And here's what's really like, you know, unfair, is when John writes his gospel account, Peter has already passed away. So the poor man can't even defend himself after he writes the gospel of John. You know that the first thing Peter said to John when John went to him was like, bro, me and you need to talk, man. Me and you need to have a conversation. So John takes a jab at Peter. And he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. Why? Because that's how Peter is. He's a bull in a china closet. Let me in. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first, there's a little jab again, just so you know. He also went inside, and he saw and believed. He saw, and he believed. But what about Peter? The Bible goes on to tell us that Jesus appears to the disciples over the next 40 days, proving that he resurrected from the dead. And there's one story that entails the conversation with Peter. It's in John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, said Simon Peter. And they said, we'll go with you. And so they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. If you don't know, Peter's occupation before he followed Jesus was he was a fisherman. And I'm guessing Peter's probably doing what all of us would probably do. Then when we're confused about what Jesus is inviting us into, when we're confused about who Jesus is, when we're confused about the way, the truth, and life, but we don't understand, oftentimes we go back to that which is most comfortable. We go back to what we know. So Peter goes back to what he knows. It's fishing. And it's probably, maybe, because it was probably too painful to actually look at the reality of the situation. Jesus is alive. Amen. But I betrayed him. I abandoned him. And Peter, just maybe, I just want you to think about how awkward that conversation would be with Jesus. To not face pain, to not face discomfort, to not have hard conversations. I mean, none of us struggle with that, right? Peter seems to be impulsive at times. It's almost like he's trying to control the situation, control the narrative. None of us struggle with control, right? Peter seems to be very hard on himself throughout the Gospels when he recognizes his own failures, when he recognizes his own sin. He comes down on himself quickly. None of us struggle with that, right? You see, if we're honest, 
I think Peter's story is really our story. And maybe not completely our story, but maybe parts of it. We begin to realize these men and women were real men and women just like us. Well, the good thing is they're not lying fishermen like we often experience today. It was this big, right? Jesus asked them early in the morning. He stood on the shore after they get done fishing. But they didn't know that it was Jesus on the shore. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? And they didn't lie. They said, no, we don't have any fish. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciples whom Jesus loved, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. How did he know? Because the first time that Jesus calls his disciples, he does the same exact thing. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him, Say, it is the Lord, like Peter fashion. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumps into the water, and he just starts swimming. Swimming to Jesus. The rest of the disciples were like, thanks for leaving us with a boat and all the fish, man. The other disciple followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about 100 yards. Remember when I said, make sure you pay attention to verse 18. When Jesus, when Peter betrayed Jesus, it was around a what? When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, but even with so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. And none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me? More than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Then feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. A third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? See what Jesus is doing? Peter betrays Jesus. Not once, not twice, three times. And Jesus comes back to Peter after he resurrects from the dead and says, do you love me? Then feed my sheep. What is Jesus saying? I want to redeem you. The call that I gave you to be a disciple, the call that I gave you to be about my kingdom, it does not go away because I'm going to redeem you. And Jesus asked a second time, do you love me? Of course I do. Then partner with me again. Let me redeem you. And a third time, Jesus says, do you love me? And Jesus undoes it all. 
He undoes the shame. He unravels the guilt. He removes the pain. The resurrection of Jesus, friends, it just doesn't take away your pain, your mistakes, your sin, but rather does something even more. The resurrection of Jesus redeems your pain. It redeems your mistakes. He redeems your sin, and he is willingly coming back over and over and over again and saying, let me redeem you. What is redemption? It's this amazing process that God allows us to go through where there's a process of bondage, slavery, being a prisoner and understanding there's a price to be paid with all of that, a ransom and then deliverance. What we call it in our, our society our, our, our nowadays, it's the comeback story. It's the comeback story where God says, I want you to be redeemed. And here's what's amazing is there's lots of different faith and beliefs. There is nothing outside of Christianity that talks about redemption. Only in Christianity is redemption talked about and displayed for all those who are willing to be redeemed. Only in Jesus do we experience redemption. Only in following him do we experience it. And Jesus is offering this redemption to Peter. And here's the thing. I'm a comeback guy. Like, I am all about the comeback story. And it's in every single one of us. And I know it's in every single one of us because we all love the comeback story, don't we? Every single one of you, if I were to say, hey, give me your 10 best movies, the best of all time, at least one of them is a redemption story. Are you with me? Let me give you a couple of mine. The Pursuit of Happiness. Great movie. Redemption. Rain Man. Redemption. Cinderella Man. Redemption. Gran Torino. Redemption. Goodwill Hunting. Redemption. And the greatest comeback story of all time, Rocky! <laughs> Why do we love these stories? Why do we love these movies? Because it's in our DNA. A longing to be restored right, a longing for forgiveness, a longing to be loved, a longing to be redeemed. And Jesus stands this morning saying, I've come to bring redemption to all of my children. How do we experience it? Well, Peter leads the way for us. Peter was hurt, verse 17. Because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Do you hear the surrender in Peter's voice? I hear it. Lord, you know. You know. And it's in this moment that you see Peter beginning to be transparent and vulnerable about what's really going on, about the hurt, the pain that he knows that he caused. And the reality of it is when it comes to redemption, that the resurrection of Jesus is only as powerful as you allow it to be by letting Jesus come into the very source of your pain, your failures, your regrets, your sin. This is what the Bible calls surrender. Redemption is available to those who surrender. And for our, our world that we live in, we tend to just like, let's just glaze it over. Let's just bury it. Let's just not talk about it. Jesus says, no, 
I want it to be laid exposed so that I can actually begin to do a new work in you. Because here's the thing, when you bury sin, when you bury hurt, when you bury shame, when you bury that, it always comes out and it's usually even uglier the second go around. And Jesus says, come to me. Come to me and let me forgive you. Let me redeem you. But it requires surrender. And surrender always feels so hard. And it feels like you're weak. And the world says, don't be weak. But in all reality, when you surrender, you are so strong. Because at that moment, what you're saying is, I've come to the end of myself. And the only thing that can redeem me is Jesus. And that's a pretty powerful place. Because Jesus meets us in that place. As Jesus meets Peter in this place and says, you're still mine. The resurrection is about Jesus not only forgiving you, but also Jesus going with you to your worst moments, your failures, your lowest moments, and lifting you up to restore you to his love and his purpose for your life. Redemption is available to all of you. And I know there's some of you that are here this morning that are saying this. You hear that inner voice that says this, you're too far gone. Jesus could never love you for what you've done. And I want to tell you, that's a lie from the pit of hell. There's nothing that Jesus can't redeem in your life, in this life or in the life to come, because he says he's going to do it. And what's cool is that Jesus is still redeeming people's lives and stories, even today, 2,000 years later. Why? Because he's really alive. And he's still at work. And we're here today celebrating that reality because lives continue to be transformed and redeemed over and over and over again. And guess what? I get a front row seat to see it all in this church. I want to introduce you to another person. Her name's Crystal. I want to introduce you to her redemption story. Let's take a look. My name is Crystal, and this is my story. In 2012, I lost my oldest son to CPS. I had been using drugs at the time. And uh, when my son was born, they said, we'll let you keep him. You just need to do these things we want you to do. And I didn't do it. So May 23rd, 2012, uh, CPS showed up on my doorstep and took my son. I grew up in an alcoholic home where sex, drugs, and rock and roll was the thing. I started drinking at like 13, smoking pot. I didn't get into other stuff until my 20s. By the time I was in my 20s, I was drinking um, all day, every day. 
as a way to just cope with life. We weren't raised with a God in our home, and my dad used to say, we don't do church, we don't do God. I had gotten to a point in my drinking career that I just wanted to die. So I decided, you know what, instead of killing myself, I, I knew that drugs would push me away even farther from everybody that I loved. So I just dove deep into that to mask my feelings, to escape. I just, I felt like I couldn't stop. And no matter how bad I wanted to stop, I couldn't. I got kicked out of where I was living. I had no place to stay and I was sitting on the floor in this room by myself with my back against the wall, crying my eyes out, asking God, why can't I stop? Within that next week, I had um, called up a sober living that I had been trying to get into and um, the woman said, you're just in luck, a girl moved out today. And that was July 7th, 2012. And I've been clean and sober ever since. And it's not easy. That was the hardest thing I'd ever had to do. I had been drinking and using for so long that I didn't know how to live life. Like normal stuff, like get up in the morning and make a pot of coffee or, you know, do dishes or wash laundry or, you know, make my bed and um, just learning how to do small things at a time. The third step of AA is came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. And it took a while for me to believe that because I didn't know what sanity was or what was normal. So just learning how to live life and to take things one day at a time was big. Once I cried out to God and he got me out of that situation, then I was able to just, I can do this. I was sober for a couple years and a friend of mine had invited us to church and I was like, ah church like <laughs> all I could hear in the back of my head was we don't do church it took a few times of invitation to finally get me to go but I felt like I was lacking in this spiritual growth in me that I just wanted something more and I needed something more in <laughs> real life uh, we moved here 2019 Sarah Sanders had reached out and said hey come to home group and I'm like what's home group she invited me me a few times before I finally decided to go and it was way out in CUNA and I live in Boise but I went and just listening to other people and not necessarily having to talk about myself just listening to other people and their relationship with God knowing that other people are struggling too and that comfort of I'm not alone so in the last five years, I've really focused on just being a better mom to my kids and not allowing certain things or certain situations to, to bring them down and that no, no matter what is going on around them, that they're loved and that they're cherished. Every morning we do positive affirmations and every evening we pray. And those have been the two consistent things over the last year that have helped my relationship with both my kids. I remember one day Ryder asked me, you know, why do we do this? 
And I told him, these are truths that you're speaking into your life. These are truths that when you're going through something that you can think back and remember, I am brave. I am loved. I can do hard things. God loves me. Jesus loves me. These are things to remind yourself in situations that when nobody else is around that you're able to do yourself. My parents didn't do that with us. And I want my kids to know that no matter what, good or bad, they're loved. Nothing they could ever do could take my love away. Nothing they could ever do could take God's love away. I don't always feel redeemed. And those are thoughts and feelings that I still struggle with. I know today that they're lies, so I have an easier time trying to silence them. I do struggle with certain things, and uh, I still try to show up and to have the best positive attitude. I want to be here. I want to be at church. I want to be giving back. I want to be a part of this great thing. I'm not sure what God is calling me to do yet, but I know he wants me here. And so this is what I'm fighting for. It's my relationship with him. This is the story of Jesus' church being redeemed over and over and over again. And you might be saying, well, I, well that's not my story. I, I didn't do those things or do that thing. You're like, yeah, yeah, you didn't. But it doesn't matter on God's scale of sin. It's sin. Jesus looks at all of us as his children and he loves us so much that he proves it by dying for us and resurrecting. He doesn't love us because he died. He loved us and proved his love for us by dying and invites us to that reality, to be redeemed. So in that reality, Crystal's story is our story. And we get to be a part of this amazing movement of helping people understand God's redemption for us and helping others be redeemed and set apart to commission with Jesus to make disciples. But if you want that, it requires all of us to come to the conclusion that I was wrong and that Jesus is right. That his way is good, and that left to our own, it's not good. Redemption says you're never too far gone to be brought back. And if you're willing to let him into your deepest pain, he'll heal it, he'll redeem it, and he'll use it 
to help redeem somebody else? Are you willing to let Jesus redeem you? As we get ready to go to communion, I just want to talk to two groups of people. The first one is I want to talk to you if you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to have a conversation with Jesus. I want you to be transparent and vulnerable with him about what's going on in your heart, why you struggle, why you have doubts, why you have questions. And maybe those are all gone today and you're ready to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. I'd love for you to have a conversation with him as we get ready to have a meal together with him. And for the Christians that are in the room, maybe you've gotten distracted. You've been walking a different path and Jesus is inviting you to get back on the path with him. Maybe you're good this morning and you've experienced the full redemption of Jesus. Would you pray for those you know that haven't experienced redemption? Would you partner with Jesus in loving the world well? And for both groups of people that are here this morning, the believer, the non-believer, would you be willing to maybe just consider that this is our fire moment with Jesus? That he's set a meal before you? That he's here and he's, he's got the coals hot and the wood is burning and this is your opportunity right here, right now to have a conversation with Jesus about that. Because he just wants you to be honest. He just wants you to have a conversation with him. Whether you believe or don't believe, he set the fire and he's ready to have a meal with you. Spend some time with Jesus this morning as we get ready to go to communion and have a meal with him.